Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. It's claimed that Rabindranath Tagore was at one time one of the most famous poets in the world. Born in Calcutta in 1861, he became the first non-European to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. W.B. Yeats and Ezra Pound were great supporters. A commanding figure in the Indian Renaissance of the 19th century, Tagore also played a major part in India's independence movement. The first Prime Minister of India, Nehru, said he had two gurus. Gandhi was one, the other was Tagore. He wrote novels and plays, he painted, composed thousands of songs, and two of his many poems became the national anthems for India and Bangladesh. With me to discuss Tagore are Chandrika Cole, lecturer in modern history at the University of St Andrews, John Stevens, Leverhulme postdoctoral fellow at SOAS, University of London, and Bashibi Fraser, Professor of English Literature and Creative Writing at Edinburgh Napier University. Chandrika Kaul, I mentioned the Indian Renaissance. Why was Bengal particularly vibrant about the time of Tagore's birth in the 1860s? Well, the Bengal Renaissance, as it is referred to, is really a 19th century phenomenon, which is conventionally uh, attributed to have started with Ram Mohan Roy, who died in 1833. And yes, it is the Tagore family played a big part in it, and it's sort of taken a, it's, it's sort of taken to end with the death of Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, in 1941. Bengal played a leading part in it because one of the well, there were three aspects to 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 the Renaissance and Reformation. Uh, there was a social and religious reform, um, a literary and scientific Renaissance, as well as a political um, reform and revolutionary strand, which really comes in at the last quarter of the nineteenth century. Now, the social and religious reform really starts in the early part of the 19th century, not in the 1860s. Um, and the impetus for this comes from the British, who from the late, 19, late 18th century begin a process of codifying and translating ancient Indian texts like the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, um, and in, in order to try and understand India, but also to codify Hindu law and so on. So it was part of the British cultural um, project of understanding and gathering of information and knowledge. But as a consequence of this, they also establish schools and universities uh, like Fort William College, uh, you know, the Asiatic Society, for instance, Serampur College, uh, Hindu College in the early 19th century. And the products of these universities and colleges, people like Ram Mohan Roy and others begin to assimilate a Western cultural, literary, philosophical traditions, the Western Enlightenment traditions, as well as the uh, teachings of Christ and Christianity, um, as along with an approach to reviving and reforming essentially Hindu religion and faith. So that's a really important part of the Renaissance, reform of Hindu, primarily Hindu religion. There is also a literary, um, a dramatic, uh, a cultural dimension to this Renaissance in which the Tagores play a very big role, um, which involves, uh, for instance, the revival of Bengali as a literary language. Um, there's also an element in which Hindu religion, by the end of the 19th century, becomes part of um, becomes part of what is treated as um, what is glorious about India's past and people like Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, Paramhans and other spiritualists take this message of not just a revival of Hindu faith but actually proclaiming it to be one of the great religions 
of the East. What is the relationship between the East India Company and the Tagores? You speak of them as a great family, which is a very, very large family. They had great wealth, they inherited great wealth, great landownings all over the place. But what's the relationship between them and the East India Company, which had, uh, in the middle of the century had been taken over by the uh, British and nationalised, as it were? Uh, it, but what was the relationship? It was a very close and interesting one, actually, because the Tagore family itself was established in Bengal at, around the time that the East India Company itself was established, which is going back to the 17th century. But over the course of the 18th century, great-grandfather of Abindranath Tagore had really made his fortune working for the company as a revenue collector. And Tagore's paternal grandfather, in the first half of the 19th century, consolidated on these revenues and invested in mining, in, in indigo and, 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 and sugar plantations, and became an entrepreneur, an extremely wealthy man who was referred to as the prince. I mean, he was at ease in Anglo-Indian society, in the sort of cultural metropolis that uh, the Anglo-Indian metropolis that Calcutta was. Remember, it was it was the capital of the, the sort of East India Company, but also the British till 1912. Uh, he was at ease with sort of Anglo-Indian society. He he twice went to Britain. He's you know he dined with Queen Victoria. He was fated by the Lord Mayor of London. So he was an assimilated Indian who benefited from the commercial and economic opportunities thrown up by the East India Company. In fact, he is reputed to have formed the first company, the first sort of British Anglo-Indian company, uh, Tagore Carr and Sons in Calcutta. John Stevens, one of the key developments associated with the Tagores is Brahmo Samaj. What was that and why did it matter? Well, the Brahmo Samaj was one of the most powerful and important uh, social and religious reform organisations to come out of the Bengal Renaissance. It was founded in the 1820s um, by the great Renaissance luminary Ramahan Roy. Um, and Ramon argued that Hinduism had initially been a monotheistic faith and that it should be interpreted rationally. Initially, the Brahmo Samaj really functioned as a small place of worship, um, but Dabendranath Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore's father, took over the Brahmo Samaj in the 1840s, and he really revitalised the movement and turned it into a very powerful force in Bengal in terms of the spread of education, in terms of reforms to do with improving the condition of women in Bengal, and also in terms of promulgating a form of Hinduism which was uh, reformist, which was universalist, and which was monotheistic and rational. Um, the Brahmo Samaj split into many different factions in the course of the 19th century, but in general, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that the Brahmos tried to tread a middle ground between those people in Bengal who wholeheartedly embra uh, embraced the West, in some cases became very westernised, in some cases became Christian, and those who very rigorously defended what they saw to be the traditions of, of India and Bengal. And the Brahmos really took a middle path where they were open to Western influence and to Western knowledge, but they believed that Indian progress should depend on reforming Indian traditions. Uh, <clears throat> we've mentioned the wealth of Tagore's family, um, and uh, he was the 14th child. Um, what was his childhood like? Well, yes, he came from a very large 
family. Um, he lived in a very culturally stimulating environment. The family lived in a large house in North Calcutta. Um, there were many, amongst his siblings, there were many great writers and artists and poets. So it was a very stimulating environment. The family were very well connected. Um, but one does get the sense from his writings about his early life that there was also an element of loneliness to it. Uh, he was largely raised by servants. It doesn't seem that he was particularly close to his parents. And also he never got on very well at school. So he, was, uh, he ended up being tutored at home. So although he was growing up in a very stimulating environment, you do get a sense that he was perhaps rather isolated within that environment. Did he coin the term servocracy? The servants who ruled everything. Was that his term? Yes, yes. Yes, it was. Well, he brought it home, but it was quite a home because <laughs> these, these, these numerous children ran their own newspaper, didn't they, which is where, or gazette, whatever you could want to call it, to which he, his first writings appear there. Yes, there were all kinds of activities going on. They were, they were extremely productive and had all sorts of enterprises. Uh, Mashiba Fraser, where, when, what was Tagore writing as a young man in India? Who were his influences when he was getting started? It's very interesting. At the beginning, you can see he was extremely influenced by the Vaishnava poets. And uh, he uh, he was uh, so influenced that he went on to write Panushinger uh, Padabuli, which is a bit like Macpherson's Ossian, only uh, under a pseudonym. And he said he had discovered this medieval poet, and he was using not Bengali, but Brojibuli, which is between Hindi and Bengali, uh, um, a dialect, and it was accepted as that, and people even said how wonderful it was. One of his friends said that, and then he owned up and said it was his, so that's the difference between Macpherson and Tagore. But uh, after he came to England, uh, he, he lived with... Uh, Why did his parents send him to England? That's a very good point. And he's quite young, isn't he? He's 17. quite young. Yeah. Yes, uh, he came with um, his uh, his brothers, uh, Shutendranath, and stayed with him and his uh, nephew and niece. But at one point, he was with the Scott family, and the three girls played the piano and played Irish melodies. And two of them were even Burns songs, which he adapted later on. So when he came back from England, so eighteen um, seventy-seven, seventy-eight was. Panushing at Padabuli, and eighteen eighty-one, you find him doing Balmiki Pratibha, which is a libretto. The earlier one was also uh, an, an operatic. But why did he come to England? Why did they send him to England? He came to study uh, law, but he and uh, he didn't progress much with it. He did attend literature classes, and uh, but he. Uh, he went back. It was a bit like what uh, uh, you mentioned, Chandrika, about his schooling. It, he he wasn't made for uh, structured studies, which were uh, compartmentalized. He liked interdisciplinary studies. But I think going uh, back to the period when he was writing as a young child, 
John mentioned the various magazines in the family. There was Bharati, which was edited by his brothers. Uh, he read at the Hindu Mela in Valmiki Pratibha. He acted himself, which was played out in Jurashakur, the fam- Tagore family seat in the courtyard. He actually played Valmiki, so he took part in his own writing. And uh, he wrote several collections of poetry at this time. And uh, one of his um, uh, famous ones is uh, The Golden Boat. Yes, could you tell us about that? Uh, Because it became widely celebrated. That was in 1892, wasn't it? That's right, yes. Yes. Uh, Well, The Golden Boat has several poems and songs. uh, And um, And there's a poem called The Golden Boat. There is the poem called The Golden Boat. I was wondering, would you like to listen to it in Bengali? Just a little bit. Um, Shunat Turi, The Golden Boat. Gogune Goroji Meg, Ghanu Barusha, Kule একা বসে আছি নাহি ভরসা রাশি রাশি ভাড়া ভাড়া ধান কাটা হলো সারা ভরা নদী খরধারা খর পরসা কাটিতে কাটিতে ধান এলো বরসা The rain is a heavy downpour. I sit alone on the bank of the river. I have a certain sense of hopelessness. I've finished reaping the harvest of paddy. There's loads of it now beside me. The river is in full spate. But while we were harvesting, the rain came. And in this poem, somebody comes in another boat. And he he feels he has seen this person. Who is he? He asks him, can you take my paddy? And he does. He fills the boat. And then he says, can you take me? He says, no, there is no room. And the boat goes away and he's alone. Chandrika, thank you very much for that. Chandrika, after he came back from London, um, he's about 19 or 20, uh, he comes back to India and his father puts him, char- puts him in charge of vast estates which are impoverished uh, and says, go and look after those. Now, what happened? Well, it's exactly the, the, the point I was trying to make when, when you were reading so beautifully because that romantic rural idyll that is at the heart of some of that poetry that we, we, ju- we just heard was vastly, it was greatly influenced by Tagore being thrown uh, at some level against his will from the security of his urban Calcutta existence to managing his father's estates in rural Bengal. And it was the first time that he came to meet uh, villagers, the common sharecroppers, uh, Uh, He was uh, instructed to collect rent and report on that once a month to his father back home in Calcutta. But he spent most of his time, you know, uh, traveling by the houseboat that the family owned, moving down the Padma River, um, visiting various households and householders. And... This greatly influenced not just his attitude towards rural reconstruction and social reform, particularly amongst the peasantry, but also his poetry, his his creative uh, spirit was in a way reborn in this new invigorating, if isolated uh, environment where where he was sort of communing with nature, uh, very different from the urban uh, metropolis of Calcutta. Reading the poems for this programme, I found the rural poems 
poems, uh, particular stories that were shorter. They were they were they were um, they were fact-filled in a way, uh, very moving and direct, much more so than the great philosophical universal uh, sweeps. Maybe that's I'm, I'm not used to that enough. But they, he seems to have got an awful lot of material. Put crude, let's be crude, a awful lot of material from there, which is way outside his grown-up experience. You're absolutely right. I think that side of it is also what is then reflected later in some of the collection of poems that is included in Gitanjali, because Gitanjali, contrary to some common myth, is not one set of poems. It's a collection of poems taken from a, a, a about 10-year period that he was writing, during which he was greatly influenced by this rural romanticism. But can I just quickly add that Tagore was not unaware of the poverty, the difficulties, the sheer hardships of rural society. It wasn't as if he was completely swayed, you know, in his creative, um, you know, with a, with a creative emotionalism that completely ignored the harsher realities of rural existence. In fact, it was the very first time that he was exposed to it, and a lot of his short stories in particular at this period reflect this reality uh, in, in a very graphic and poignant way. John Stevens, um, the, he was kept apart from politics for a while, but then he got stuck in, in 1905 with the partition of Bengal. Can you tell us about that? Yes, well, Bengal was partitioned in 1905, uh, although this partition was eventually annulled in 1911 and the the British claimed in their arguments for their reasons for partitioning Bengal was that Bengal was a very large province, it was very hard to administer and it would be easier to govern if it was split into two but in fact it is generally known and accepted now that part of the reason that the British wanted to divide Bengal was to weaken the growing nationalism there and so you can see this partition as, as part of the British policy of divide and rule. And it was really at this time that the idea of a Muslim East Bengal and a Hindu West Bengal, the seeds of that idea, were sown. Now, a, a movement emerged very quickly in opposition to this partition, and this was called the Shodeshi movement, which was an economic form of resistance um, it, it varied, but um, it certainly involved the boycotting of British goods, the promotion of indigenous produce. And, and Tagore was part of this. And Tagore became part of this, yes. He was very much in favour of the boycott of British goods, although he wasn't in favour of the destruction of British factories. He wrote uh, songs and poems in favour of Shodeshi. He led a big uh, Shodesi uh, procession through Kolkata. Was this rather difficult for him because he was, at that time he's still very pro-British, very pro, and the whole of his life he wanted East and West to to intermingle and join together. Was this a? Well, it seems like a slight sidestep for him, doesn't it? Well, but 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 Tagore wasn't pro-British in the sense that he wanted British rule to continue no. indefinitely in, that, in, in, in India. But he was, he was certainly very open to British culture. Yeah. Um, but with the Shodeshi movement, in the end, he did turn against the movement. And this was because in 1907 there were some very serious riots, um, uh, communal riots. And part of the reasons for this, part of the problem with Shodeshi was that Shodeshi goods, these indigenous goods, were more expensive than the British goods. And the largely Muslim peasantry often couldn't afford these Shodeshi goods, but were 
forced into buying them. This created tension. There were these very serious riots. Tagore was appalled by the violence, and it was at this point um, that he really moved away from the Shodeshi movement and from politics um, in, in general. Yes, and we, we can go back to the poetry now, Bashi Befraze. In, in 1910, he published poems in, in Bengali, which, which um, Chandrak has referred to, Gitanjali, or Song Offerings, and two years later he, he travelled to London with a broader collection under the same name. Um, we, we know a little about the poems from what Chandrak has said. Do you want to say a little more about them and then what happened to them when he got to London in 1912? Um, yes, uh, uh, as Chandrika mentioned, the uh, poems that we see translated by Tagore and, uh, um, I should add, slightly edited by Yeats, as Rothenstein says, uh, were actually 103 poems uh, altogether, of which only 53 were from the Bengali 1910 Gitanjali. The rest were from various other books, uh, like um, Kea, the Ferry, and Noibeddu, offering. He came with this manuscript to Britain. He he had delayed his journey because he hadn't been well, and that's why he had retreated uh, uh, and uh, to to uh, his his estate and where he was translating the into prose translations from his uh, various notebooks. When he came to England, he t did tell Rothenstein about them, and Rothenstein had early expressed an interest in reading his writing in English. Uh, interestingly, he had there's a story that he had uh, given them to his son Rothindranath, who had left them in Victoria Station, and some some kind soul had found them. So it might have been lost altogether, and it would have been a different story. Uh, Tagore himself says he gave them to Rothenstein with some reluctance. He was always a bit hesitant about his own English translations. And um, uh, he, he met, he was introduced to Yeats in June 19, uh, uh, in, in 12. Uh, 12, and in July he read to a huge gathering Yeats of did. 70 people. Yeats read three of Tagore's poems. And that points. seemed to change the game. Yes, and then he, uh, India Society uh, went on to publish uh, the book and uh, Sturgemore, uh, who was a fellow of the Royal Society, actually nominated to go for the Nobel Prize. And then Chandrika, he's he put up for the Nobel Prize in 1913 and he wins it, the first non-Westerner to win that prize for literature, which is a great, a great achievement. It is an achievement, but no one was more surprised than Tagore. Um, he receives the news. He travelled from Britain. He went to America, where he read, you know, where he, on the wave of this crest of public adulation inspired by Yeats, carried him to America, and he was much fated in, in, in the various talks he gave there. And on the way back, when they reached India in November, that's when he first heard about it. He was surprised because to him it just represented a very small part of his his what he considered to be his over. But also, I think a lot of other people were very surprised. I mean, there were other well, can strong I just contenders. For one In one of the notes of one of you, you say there was. It, what, it did only represent a very small portion of his work. But in the Nobel Library, yeah. there was a lot of his other work. So the, the, those who judged the prize would have had a chance to read more than that book of songs. Well, they might have been, but you see, one of the problems was of translation. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as a lot of historians have pointed out, even Tagore himself wasn't really often translating, but transcreating. You know, he was always uh, 
And at some level, you know, he was trying to simplify and he admitted that in the 1920s and 30s, this kind of approach actually didn't didn't uh, help in appreciation of his his work in order to, you know, in order to get an international audience. But I think one of the things about the Nobel Prize was that, you know, there were other contenders like Thomas Hardy and others who who were, you know, I, I think uh, the, the, the leading horses in the race. And, and, and it's quite interesting to try and understand why Tagore got this. I mean, they, he had some Swedish followers in the sense some poets in Sweden who took took more uh, Serge Mou's sort of uh, recommendation up. Uh, but I think it was also because, you know, you have to remember the context of Europe at this time, the lead to lead up to the First World War, the growing militarism, you know, the war clouds on the horizon. And what Tagore's poems at one level represented to, if you like, a common interested audience was this breath of fresh air, this, this hope of communion with nature, this romantic idyll of peace. Um, and coming from Tagore, or this, this, this sort of long with a long beard and piercing eyes who you know who seemed to represent everything that the oriental sage of kipling's time would have you know would have represented i think there was an element of that in this process do you want to make a comment Bajabi? yeah i was just going to say that the nobel library had glimpses of bengal uh, uh, then uh, uh, had um, the songs of uh, love and life from tagore and uh, it, and Kea and Noibud in Bengali and there was Essays Tegna who actually read Bengali so I think they uh, they had a chance to uh, I, yes to go. Uh, so, so it isn't a surprise that politics plays a part in prizes I mean they pay politics with a small p and a big p or both at the same time always plays a part or mostly plays a part in the, in the giving of prizes maybe it was about time for him to arise as you said let's have someone like that from the east who's giving us something we don't have here and I think that's a very good explanation so that's partly politics but this stuff was good so what's the problem? No, I, I'm not saying there was one. I was just trying to explain why it's a difficult question to answer because, as you said, it's a bit of a lottery. But um, I was also trying to explain what happens afterwards in the 1920s and 30s when even Tagore admits very mediocre translations of his own work hit the market in the West. And there is a bit of a backlash. I mean, he is criticised amongst yeah, yeah. the very ones who were sort of supporting him. And, and I know that I'm... You're getting, you're, you're getting ahead. Ahead, yes. The cart's getting ahead of the horse, I'm afraid, at the moment. So if we just move to that sure. just a little later. I want to take a John Stevens here. And The Knighthood in 1915, um, that, again, by George V, that, again, was must have been a surprise for him and a big acknowledgement. Well, certainly. And it seems that he received that largely in recognition of the Nobel Prize. Um, I mean, he... he did have strong connections with the British in India, had good relations with, with some British officials in India. But yes, it certainly would have, have come to a, as a surprise for it. But more dramatic him. is the fact that he renounced it four years later. Certainly. And can you briefly tell us the event? I know it's an enormous event in Indian history, and a defining event, really, yeah. in Indian history. Uh, so tell us about that, and then that's why I renounced it. Yes. So the reason that Tagore renounced his knighthood was because of the Amritsar massacre, which took place in April 1919. Very briefly, there were a large group of protesters. They were protesting against the arrests of uh, a number of Congress leaders and also against um, some very unpopular legislation which had effectively made these arrests possible. They had gathered uh, in... Amritsar, 
and uh, Brigadier General Dyer uh, was there with his troops in the area. He became very worried by this protest. He saw it as evidence of a coming full insurrection uh, in the area, which it wasn't. This was an unarmed protest. And men, women and children. Yes, and in the end, Dyer ordered his troops to open fire on the unarmed crowd, which they did. Uh, reports state that they carried on firing for as long as 10 minutes. They were shooting people who were running away. It was really And the awful. casualties were? The casualties were contested, perhaps 400 dead, 2,000 injured, but there are different figures. The British tried to suppress news of this massacre getting out, but it did get out. In the end, Dyer was, in fact, forced to retire in Britain. He was severely criticised. Tagore got to hear of it in May, and his immediate response was to write to uh, the Viceroy, Lord Chelmsford, and to renounce his knighthood. And that letter, renouncing his knighthood, is now a very celebrated document of Indian resistance. And the sense of it is that Tagore is basically saying that he doesn't want to be receiving any special honours when his countrymen are, are being treated as insignificant. Bashima Fraser, um, he uses... Can we move forward from that? Because I th thank you very much. That explained the whole thing. Uh, Tagore uses Nobel Prize money to help fund education, and that became one of the driving forces in his life for the rest of his life. Um, where did he focus his energies in education? It's such a wide field. It's a very good question, a very big one. Uh, he had founded uh, his school at Shantaniketan in 1901, and, uh, and then his university in, in 1921, and the sister rural reconstruction centre, the sister institution in Sri Nikitan in 1922. Uh, and his resources were very limited by that time. So uh, the Nobel Prize was a good opportunity. He was the poet in the world whom everybody knew, and he was invited right across the world to lecture. So he utilised that, the money he gathered from the lecture. So what sort of educational establishments did he set up? Uh, there were three, uh, th three aspects to it, I would say. Tagore went, it, uh, went back to the ancient Indian uh, concept of the tapovan, the forest hermitage, uh, where the student and teacher live close to nature. Classes are held without walls impeding. He actually said that we shouldn't, we we need opening in walls ra rather yeah, so than that's walls. One. What's the, other uh, the other is uh, Vishwabharati which is the university, the second level where it, it was interdisciplinary, but culture and arts would be part of a liberal education. He did bring in the sciences, but he also brought in, brought the East and West together. And that was the his second uh, idea of the university being a, a, a platform for intellectual and cultural exchange program. But he also felt that university shouldn't be uh, separate from the surrounding areas. And he, he worked very hard at, the, at Srinigatan through his rural, rural reconstruction centre to replenish the villages around, which were Hindu, Muslim and Santal, uh, uh, and to bring to dispel the sense of apathy, and and to help them in self um, awareness and self reliance. Chandrika, we're told that when Gandhi returned to India, <coughs> India from South Africa, he sought out Tagore. How did the two men get on? 
Well, they were good friends. They admired and respected each other's views. But there came a time when they agreed to disagree too. And, and I think that really boils down to two, both a difference in ideology, but also a difference in political practice, how you go about trying to reform Indian society, as well as achieve, I suppose, political freedom, which Tagore felt was Gandhi's main aim. For Tagore, social progress and social reconstruction took primacy over political independence. He felt that if India didn't get her own house in order, then the polit- grant of political independence in itself wouldn't solve the problems besetting the country. So I think there was a difference in emphasis. But also, let me give you a quick example of how this translated into, into critique. Tagore, when Gandhi launched the non-cooperation movement in 1920-22, Tagore was uh, wandering around Europe trying to raise funds for Shanti Niketan and advocating cooperation with Western universities, uh, intellectuals, and uh, in, in some Western, uh, Western thought at the very time that Gandhi was talking about non-cooperation, not just with British, but Tagore felt with everything modern and Western. And so there was an ideological difference there, but also in terms of actual practice. Tagore, for instance, was opposed to Gandhi's emphasis on burning of foreign cloth, on boycott of of schools because he felt these were nihilist, in essentially nihilist. You cannot ask the poor to burn the, the only cloths they have without supplying them with cheaper alternatives. Similarly, you cannot and you shouldn't ask students to leave universities and schools without giving them an alternative, a viable alternative. Given his emphasis on education, he felt very strongly about this. And what brought, what brought this sort of crisis, if you like, to a head was the, the fact that both of them went public with their views. Uh, Tagore wrote in the Modern Review. Uh, Gandhi wrote in his newspapers. He was a he was a well known publicist uh, in Young India, in particular in English. So this reached a much wider audience than just Indians. Uh, Tagore, Gandhi uh, brushed off most of Tagore's criticism, uh, included amongst which was his opposition to a very narrow sectarian nationalism that he felt was gaining ground in 1920s India. He was also very opposed to the strand of anti, uh, co- the communal strand that begins to creep into India, the Hindu-Muslim crisis, as he saw, which actually had reared its head in the uh, Swadeshi movement uh, in the partition of Bengal as well. And that was one of the reasons that he had actually taken a step back. So that that part of his critique of Gandhi's, uh, if you like, rhetoric is also strong. Can I just finish with one, one quick point? Um, the, the other side of it was Gandhi's almost sort of aversion, if you like, to Western technology and by implication science and progress. This is something that Tagore felt very strongly about. And in, in the 1930s, when the Bihar earthquake uh, found Gandhi talking about that as a divine visitation because of the sins of untouchability, Tagore Goes anger knew no bounds, and it reached the public sphere because they made it public. But essentially, they were for ind- independence. Yeah, but it's very strange. They they seem to disagree on everything that mattered, and yet they 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 were very fond of, of, of praising each other. I don't mean that in any sense. They 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 recognise the value of each other, and so we're moving on from that. Uh, now, John, what what impact, briefly, uh, was Tagore's creative works having? by the 1930s, particular on the subcontinent. But impact in terms of Bengali people, writing people and, 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 sure. and literature. Well, he was, he was obviously an extremely well-known figure by, by that point. I mean, when he won the Nobel Prize, he was really transformed into a global star and his works were, were translated all across the world. And in terms of his 
impact in Bengal and on Bengali literature and on other writers, it, that's very hard to summarise because it was so great. And even by that point was was enormous and has only grown over time. And I think that was partly because... Poems in every house, uh, quoted on every occasion. Precisely, and people learning things by heart, learning songs by heart. And, and Over 2,000 songs, we're told, yes, yes. Yes, and now his works are very, very widely read, very well known. And translated into many of the Indian languages. Yes, mm. and, and uh, another thing about Tagore's output is... The, there was so much of it, and in so many different genres. He wrote novels and poems and plays, short stories, songs, dance dramas. You can go on and on. And within those genres, there's a lot of variation as well. So it came to the point when, where, really, if you were writing anything in Bengali, you were immediately compared, usually unfavourably, to Tagore. Chandraga, just turn back to you for one second to summarise that uh, he was thought to go to be ahead of his time. He said twenty years ahead of his time. Is this because he was anti the spinning wheel of Gandhi and believed in the technology that was going through the West? Well, certainly he was very exposed to it. You know, given yeah. that his whole family was such an assimilated family, travelled abroad. He visited five different con- countries and thirty uh, five different continents and thirty different countries. I, I was reading somewhere. Um, he was exposed to the benefits of Western technology, scientific progress. Um, he uh, embraced this. So let me give you a quick example. The birth of broadcasting in India. Gandhi and others actually shunned broadcasting. Tagore embraced it, used the mic to broadcast not just his political and social message, but often reading his own poetry too. He wrote a poem, Akashvani, uh, particularly to celebrate the opening, for instance, of the medium wave transmitter in Calcutta. Uh, so he was really immersed in this Western technological uh, progress. And he firmly believed that to shun this would, would, would isolate it. India, and that would not help in its eventual progress, even when it gained independence. Well, but there was a, there is a time in the lives of many poets, including Shakespeare, for a century or two, when their reputation dips, and Tagore's reputation dipped. And um, can you give us some idea of how deep the dip was, and whether you think he's still in the dip or it's coming up again? Um, there, there, there was a group of poets who felt that you know they couldn't be heard in Bengal because of Tagore. And they came in with the. Uh, they were very influenced by Anglo-American um, uh, modernism. They were called the Kollul Goshti, the Kollul group of poets, and uh, they had their own uh, magazines, uh, li- literature journals. And uh, it's interesting that on the one hand you have Adhinakata, uh, which is um, modernism, and on the other hand you have Rabindrikata, which is. Tagorean. Uh, so but he actually put himself in his play, didn't he? In one of his poems, he said, Tagore's, Tagore's past it now. Yeah. And he's writing that poem. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Tagore was very disturbed by this. And in 1928, he put this uh, lid on, on the debate with Shishir Kobita, Farewell, My Friend, which is actually a novel, but it ends with a beautiful poem, which is actually a modernist poem and an answer to everybody who had gone against him. And yet in it, uh, Tagore appears as a character, 10 interpolated pages that appear in the third edition of the book. And there, yeah, he, uh, Tagore is, there is a whole assembly where Tagore is being judged by poets, by Amit Ray. And uh, they say the age era of Tagore is over. But then Amit Ray himself starts quoting Tagore. 
So that sort of brings to go We're back. We're not quite clear. I, I, maybe there's no clear answer to my rather too obvious question, but uh, uh, can you can we can you have a go at it? His reputation did dip for a while, didn't it? Uh, in the forties, particularly fifties. Am I wrong here? No, you're certainly no, no, absolutely not. In the nineteen twenties and thirties, and something that Tagore himself regretted and picked up on. And this goes back to what I said. It's about the, the lack of access to his poetry in Bengali. Though there was a spate of translations, the quality of those translations were often suspect. Right. So his reputation suffered a dip. But can I just quickly point out a couple of other things? One was his critique of nationalism, which he makes during the First World War. And he goes around Japan, China and the United States talking about this. And this creates a certain ba- political backlash that has implications for his reputation as a poet. Inevitably, the two cannot be delinked. Uh, he talks about the crisis of civilization in the 1920s and 30s. But the other positive, and I think a side of Tagore's uh, reputation in the 30s, is the fact that he reinvents himself now as a as a painter, as an artist. And it is his paintings that in the 1930s are widely exhibited in Paris, in Berlin, in London, in Moscow, and receives very flattering praise. So he's a polymath who doesn't quite go away, though the attention shifts, if you like, to some extent uh, from him as a poet. Briefly. The dip in uh, Tagore's reputation is because of the politics of the time as well. And uh, the nationalist movement was uh, picking up. But also, I think uh, he was also quite disillusioned by the fact that India still wasn't free and that the world was dragged into Second World War. And after uh, uh, after independence, uh, India was partitioned. So Tagore was proved right once again that divisive politics don't go anywhere. So with the nation building that emerged in in the world, in both India, our rebuilding in Europe, Tagore was no longer a priority till the centenary of Tagore and the 150th anniversary of Tagore when there were further resurgences. But isn't it ironic jo- no, then can that I just Bangladesh... Ask, can I, excuse me, can I just ask John Stephen one final question? What, would you, what do you think is the strongest part of his legacy is now? The strongest part of his legacy, well... In West Bengal and Bangladesh, his his legacy is visible everywhere because yeah. he's so deeply imbricated. I'm sorry about Bengali that. I shouldn't have asked that question. We're beyond time. It's my entirely my mismanagement. Thank you very much to Chandrika Call, Bashiba Fraser, John Stephen. Next week we'll talk about the Lancashire cotton famine, which came back as a result of the American Civil War. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I thought it was very, very good. Much. We got a lot in. Yeah. Yes, you're very, very, it's very clear. I think people who didn't know will learn a lot. People who do know will be reassured that there's still a great deal to talk about. Yeah. But I don't know what you thought. What do you think, John? Yes, I mean, I, we did we did cover a lot. I, it would have been nice to have gone a bit more into his critiques of nationalism yes. and yeah. to his I was trying to get that into his yeah. his u- real universalist Correct. philosophy. Yeah. Exactly, because I think that's so. Important. That's his legacy in terms but of his legacy. That, that's what I was going but to say. Yes, I, I thought you might was. be. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't. I couldn't agree with you more. The, the whole idea of unity in diversity, yes, which yes. is so important but in India. That's a, saying that, uh, that's a saying that to go, uh, of Tagore's that has been adopted by the government of India, mm. yeah. unity in di- yeah. diversity. But also I think what, what people um, uh, don't often realise is that the two kinds of nationalism that he's talking about, the nationalism yes. with the uh, the small nation end. with the uh, small end, which is society, yes. and the 
yes. uh, capital N, which, which is actually um, uh, uh, state-operated coercive that's, forces. That's exactly. So, I, was, I was trying mm, to hint mm, at that the narrow sectarian nationalism that he critiques so vehemently mm, in his mm-hmm. book in the First World War, mm-hmm. and that's something that he critiques across the board. It mm. isn't just India. It's about Japanese militarism. It's about what's happening in Western Europe with the war. I mean, he, you know, a, a, um, I think it was the Nation in New York says that Gandhi was lecturing about this in 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 America in 1916 and 17, and the Nation said that we are being treated to not Gandhi, sorry, Tagore, and 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 the Nation said we are being tre- treated to uh, Tagore's scoldings at seven hundred dollars a scold. Oh, that's right. You know that he was coming and lecturing to them when they were dying, you know, on the yeah. battlefields of Europe, and this really added to this this backlash, if you like, against Tagore in well, general. He got, I in, he got himself in trouble in America. There wasn't time to go into it. This this. Uh, it, it, wrongly thought to have been implicated in a plot of plotting with the Germans yes, against was, America. But yeah. it all got... It all there was also something about Indian, uh, young Indian revolutionaries yes, out right. to plot and kill him and who it, got into an argument and forgot that they had to kill him. I mean, it's, it's all very silly, but I, but I do think... But it what, wasn't silly, this... this, 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 this critique idea. of nationalism wasn't. But no, it, no, it, it, the, the, it seemed to... You, you tell me that I'm wrong here. But the idea that the Americans thought that he somehow was implicated with the German cause in 1917, lessened his reputation in America considerably. Is that right? Yeah, it, it was right because uh, the the uh, British uh, uh, Foreign Secretary in, uh, in America actually told the American government that he was dangerous and he was actually colluding with the uh, Germans because uh, he had been very popular in Germany earlier and also there was this fear when he went to Japan in 1916 that he went there again to to solicit Japanese um, why did, I should have asked you, why, why did he travel so compulsively? I should have asked that, really. Yes, I... I well, mean, he wanted to... I think he didn't just see uh, India needed to... Um, uh, India needed independence. He felt, as you said, Chandrika, that India needed to commu- uh, communicate with the not world. In the program. Yeah, <laughs> no, you did say. I it's think it's a program uh, still going on. Yeah, so the, communicate right. with the, with the West. Yes. But also, he was quite unique in India that he wanted to also communicate with the East, with yes. Japan and China. Yeah. Uh, most people were looking to the West. Only. Yeah, and he was uh, internationalist. He as was internationalist. You know, he, he, yeah. he absolutely believed. That, that the way forward for the world yeah. was for different cultures to interact with each other. That's what he, exactly. he believed. He, he, he never bought into the idea that India should be transformed in the image of Britain, although mm. uh, he was very welcoming to British culture. He never bought into the idea that India should isolate itself exactly. from other parts of the world. He really felt that if there was to be any progress, yes. then cultures needed to interact with each other. So I, I think that his very wide international travels were really him putting that philosophy into, into practice. It's yes, Simon Tillotson, our producer. <laughs> there are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.